Welcome to the King's Church Podcast. At the King's Church, we exist to see a greater worship of Jesus through declaring and displaying the gospel. You're about to listen to a sermon from our weekly corporate worship gathering. If you want to follow along with the sermon notes, they can be found on our website, kingschurchlkld.com. having me and as Pat said this is a, a wonderful privilege to be able to see the fruit of so much labor that I had a chance to see in the real early stages of the King's Church and to uh, build a relationship with Ian and Molly and some of you uh, ladies and guys and children so uh, thank you for welcoming me here today um, like Pat mentioned, I had the opportunity to plant a church uh, much like this, and so I love church planning. I love being around church planners. I love the early stages of church planning. And um, as I was in Montgomery planning a church, seeking to build relationships with uh, individuals, I sought out different unbelievers and had a chance to be able to uh, forge relationships, hoping to see them uh, come to know uh, Jesus. And um, there was an occasion not too long before I transitioned out of two cities, the church I planted to come back here. I was talking with one of these unbelievers. His name is Johnny. And Johnny is a guy that grew up in the church, but he had, he had turned away from the church. And um, by God's grace, our first meeting was real rocky. But over the course of uh, five or six years, uh, we were able to build a friendship. And he lived in my neighborhood. And we were talking about one of my neighbors, and I had had some difficulties with this particular neighbor, and it had been ongoing, ongoing. I won't go into the details. And I'm talking with Johnny about this neighbor. Somehow the neighbor's name came, came up in our conversation. And right when he said the neighbor's name, the first thing that came out of my mouth was, what a jerk. I said this to this unbeliever who I'm ministering to, trying to point to Jesus. And the first thing that comes out of my mouth is, that guy is a jerk. And, of course, you know what that's like, I assume. I'm not the only one here. Those things come out of your mouth, and as it's coming out of your mouth, you're thinking, stop, 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 and it just comes out. And I was immediately convicted and embarrassed, and especially because this unbeliever didn't, you know, chime in and agree. He just sat there and looked at me. <laughs> you know, why was that the first thing that came out of my mouth? Well, Jesus, in the book of Matthew, um, says these words I know that some of you are familiar with, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. You see, I had built up so much malice and anger towards this particular neighbor that just at the utterance of his name, I spewed out exactly what Jesus warns us against in this passage today. What a jerk. What a fool. What a moron. And you know what was so severe about those words that came from my mouth? Certainly it was not kind. It was not loving. It was careless. But what was even more severe is that according to what Jesus is going to teach us today, it was murder. That it was murderous hate that flowed out of my heart towards this neighbor who had really gotten under my skin. Let me pray and ask for the Lord to... Um, bless our time in the word. Father, you are good. You have given us your son. You have given us your word. 
The grass withers and the flowers fade, but your word abides forever. Would you teach us this morning through your word truly what your commandment means? That even us who maybe have never murdered, physically taken someone's life in our anger, in our words, in our thoughts, in our heart, we are so guilty of that. But Lord, even as you expose us of this sin, would you point us to the Lord Jesus Christ and his righteousness, our only hope? We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. I asked Ian just to help the transition, kind of to give me a few points from his last sermon. So just if you were here, um, or if you're not here especially, I want to just kind of transition a little bit. That last week, Ian looked at Matthew 5, 17 through 20. And that section really clarified Christ's relationship with the law of God, with the Old Testament law. And Jesus was very clear that he said, I did not come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill the law, which is very important. Jesus doesn't pose himself, uh, poise himself against the Old Testament law. He is the fulfillment of the Old Testament law. And then there's this really incredible verse, verse 20. That really grabs our attention. I know Ian spent some time looking at that last week. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That's a powerful verse. And what Ian talked about last week is that this exceeding righteousness that Jesus talks about is not about, quote, being better, but rather becoming new. It's not working up within ourselves, our own self-righteousness, it's receiving the great gift of Christ's righteousness. That true righteousness, that righteousness that's outside of ourselves that we must free, that we must receive freely through faith in Christ, when we rest in Christ. And I think last week, uh, Ian talked about how this righteousness is also, uh, it's deeper than what it looks like. See, the Pharisees just wanted to stay on the surface. The Pharisees just wanted to be skin deep, but this This exceeding righteousness has to go under the surface. It goes deeper than that. It isn't just focused on the externals, but rather it focuses on the whole person. It focuses on the heart. And so this is a great transition to what Jesus is about to say. In verse 21, you have heard that was said. Six times he'll say that for the remainder of this chapter. In some form or fashion, he's going to say, you have heard that it was said, but I say. And so what Jesus is trying to do here is he's trying to to get beyond that external understanding of the law and get to the heart. He's trying to challenge that Pharisaic self-righteousness, that skin-deep surface level to get to the heart. Jesus is not correcting the Old Testament. Let me be clear about that. He's not correcting the Old Testament. He came to fulfill the Old Testament. He's correcting the misunderstandings and the misinterpretation of the, of the law in the Old Testament, which was what he's addressing here with the Pharisees, which was prevalent at the time. More specifically, Jesus is addressing the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. You see, the, the Pharisees' understanding of that was, again, just surface level, just taking someone's life. They would say, don't take someone's life because you'll have to come before the civil magistrates and deal with their wrath. But Jesus says, oh, no, 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 no. It's so much bigger than that. What Jesus was doing here is he was deepening the understanding of this Old Testament law, this moral law, thou shalt not murder. 
He wasn't destroying it. He was deepening the demands of God's law. He was showing that the true application of the sixth commandment is not just taking someone's life, but it's much wider and deeper. It goes to the thoughts. It goes to the intents of our heart. It goes to the words. It goes to to our deeds. It goes to, to our anger and the insults that come out of our heart. Jesus begins to to take the, 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 the covers off and expose how we are all murderers here today. That a murderer is proclaiming the gospel to you today, just as I gave my illustration through my murderous hate that flowed out of my murderous heart. Just when we think we're doing okay with the Ten Commandments, right? I haven't killed anyone. Jesus said, no, you have. You have with your murderous hate and your insults. First John 3.15 reinforces what Jesus is saying here. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. You see these angry thoughts and insults. These words may, may, may never actually lead, and hopefully never actually lead to the ultimate act of murder. But they are tantamount in God's eyes to murder. Anger and insults are the ugly symptoms of a desire to get rid of someone in our life. Get this person out of our life, so I'm going to push you away, and I'm going to expose you with my hate, with my anger. Charles Spurgeon said this, murder lies within anger. For we wish harm to the object of our wrath, or even wish that he or she did not exist. Begin to see the connection between hate and murder in our words and our thoughts and our heart. Even calling someone a fool or a jerk like like, like your preacher did is related to anger in that it represents a destructive attitude and an attack on someone's character and their identity. Even using those strong words, I want to destroy that person's character. I want to destroy that person's name. I want to defame them right in front of my unbelieving neighbor. Slightly convicting. Well, I have three points that kind of flow out of this passage that I want us to look at today. Defining anger. Important for us to understand what is anger. How does it... How does it get within, I mean, how does it flow out of our sinful heart? What does that look like? Detecting sinful anger. How do I see those idols behind my anger? And then finally, defeating uh, sinful anger. And as we define sinful anger, of course, Jesus here is exposing that that, uh, murder here. And then Sixth Commandment is not just taking someone's life. It's, it's, It's the insults, it's the hate, it's the malice, it's the anger. And so he really focuses on anger. And so I think it's helpful for us to understand uh, what is anger? What is, what is sinful anger, really, is what we're looking at here. How does it compare to righteous anger? We know that Jesus himself confronted the Pharisees with anger, with righteous anger, not sinful anger. Jesus never sinned. So, so Jesus, Jesus you know, directed his Righteous anger and his wrath towards those who rebelled against him. We see that in the father as well. We see that in the temple when he clears the money changers. But what about us? 
what does righteous anger, anger look like for us? Can we do righteous anger? Is that, is that just reserved for Jesus? Well, there's a, there's a verse in, in uh, the Ephesians where Paul says this, Ephesians 4, 26 through 27. He says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down in your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Paul gives us an imperative statement here. He actually tells us to be angry. Do you know that? You're commanded to be angry. But then notice what he says. Do not let the sun go down in your anger. So yes, even believers can demonstrate this righteous anger. But we have to be very careful to how quickly we cross that line into sinful anger. How quickly we let the sun go down our anger. And so just, just to understand sinful anger better today, let me just contrast it with righteous anger. Righteous anger is when God doesn't get what he wants and he deserves. Think about Jesus when he is righteously angry. The religious leaders, they're trying to steal the glory from God. Righteous anger is when God doesn't get what he wants and deserves. Sinful anger is when I don't get what I want and I think I deserve. Big difference there. Righteous anger is when God doesn't get what he wants and he deserves because he's God. Sinful anger is when I don't get what I want and I think I deserve it. And so I'm going to attack you until I get what I want. Now, I wish I had time to unpack the beauty of righteous anger, particularly as it relates to justice and what that looks like, but I just don't. And that's really not what the passage is talking about here. The passage is addressing sinful anger. And so we want to look at that today. You know, the basis of our sinful anger is our selfish desire. The basis of our sinful anger is our selfish desire. James will say this in James 4, 1 through 2. What causes quarrels? What causes fights among you? Is it not that your passions are at war within you? And listen to what James says. He says, you desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. I mean, James is, is, is reinforcing what Jesus is saying here with anger and quarreling and murder. But notice what he says. He says, you desire and you do not have. That is at the basis of sinful anger. I want what I want. If I can't get it, I'm going after you whether you're in my way or not. And I'm going to take you out with my words. I'm going to take you out with my anger and my heart. Listen to what the American Psychological Association says about anger. This is, this is pretty impressive. It says this, The underlying message of highly angry people, according to the American Psychological Association website, is this, quote, Things ought to go my way. Things ought to go my way. We are sinfully angry when we cannot control things that hurt us. We are sinfully angry when things get out of control and they hurt us. Listen to what one commentary says. Wrath's expression, anger's expression, therefore usually involves the assertion of control. Even as, ironically enough, we lose control of ourselves. If we can't control something, we're going to control it. And in the midst of doing that, we lose absolute control of our emotions. Just like I did when I was talking to my neighbor. I want what I want and woe to anyone or anything that gets in my way. 
That's what sinful anger says. You know, we typically get more angry about a cutting personal insult than an injustice that's happening to someone who's being oppressed. Our image of a just universe is that things ought to go our way and we'll personally take it upon ourselves if they don't. It's convicting to think about how often we find ourselves more angry by our wounded ego than by the abortions that take place in the city. And we shake our fist at the media. We shake our fist at social media more than we lift our hands to heal the broken. That we inwardly mock those who disagree with us more than we publicly defend the rights of the voiceless. That's how insidious sinful anger is. Completely self-absorption. Once you imagine that you're on a road trip You're heading down the interstate, and your check engine light comes on. You've got some miles ahead of you. You're far enough out of town. Certainly are alarmed. What's going on? There's no smoke yet. There's no weird silence, but you see a check engine light, and you think, I need to deal with this. I can't just keep driving lest something happens. And so you find on the exit, you see that there's a, uh, can't find a dealer. You can't find a, a repair shop, but you see there's a, an auto zone or pet boys, one of those places where you know you can pull in and the guy will come and take his little gadget and he'll hook it up and he'll be able to help tell you what's going on and why that check engine light has come on. And you do so and the guy tells you, he says, hey, it could be one or two or three things, but it could be really serious. And if you don't deal with this, if you don't take this, get fixed, something bad could happen to your engine. And you say, you know what? I hear what you're saying, but instead what I want you to do is I want you to turn off this light. That will make me feel so much better if you'll just turn that light off. The guy looks at you like you're crazy. And he does this little thing in code. And he turns all the light. And you get back in your car and go, Phew, that was close. <laughs> right? It's silly. But, you know, so often that is how we want to deal with our anger. We see the symptoms of our anger. We yell. We, we say things we shouldn't. We have sharp words. That check engine light's popped up. And it's good that we want to deal with the symptoms of those anger. That's important. We don't want to raise our voice and use cutting words. But if we just stay there and we just deal with the symptoms, it's about as wise as turning the check engine light off and getting back on the road. You see, it's got to go deeper than that. It's, we have to go underneath the hood of our anger and figure out what in the world is going on in our heart. Because when it comes to sinful anger, it's important that we need to discern the underlying idolatry of our heart. And I bet that uh, Ian has used that word before, idolatry. But if, he, if you haven't heard that before, if that's confusing, we often think about the, the idols in the Old Testament or even maybe idols that people worship now that are stone and wood. But you've probably understood already here at King's Church that the idols of our heart, that are a matter of fact, our heart, as one person said, is an idol factory. That an idol is anything that I love more than Jesus. Anything I'm more devoted to than Jesus. Anything I worship more, more than Jesus. And so what are those things under the hood of our heart that is bringing up that check engine light of anger? What are those things that grab us, 
that, that make us lash out? What are those deep desires that have been thwarted? What are those personal rights, whether they're perceived to be true or real, have been violated? How have my desires been crossed? What is that thing that's so important within me that's going to make me attack you because you're in my way with my anger? You know, sometimes that's difficult to understand. And it's important to have pastors and friends, people you trust, to be able to help you expose those idols. And you might be able to do that and have that person. But let me give you a recommendation, an idea, something that you can do to help you sort of discern what's going under the hood of your heart, those idols. It's something called an anger journal. Let me, let me recommend this. To, to take a month, if you can do this, take a month and write down every time you lose as best as you can. You probably can't do it every time. But take a month and write down every time you lose your anger, lose your temper. You get angry. You say something harsh or hurtful to others. You find yourself harboring bitterness. So write that down and, and then write, you know, briefly describe these circumstances. What happened? What stoked you? What was that apparent trigger that just set you off? And then when the month is finished, prayerfully look for some patterns. Do I see some patterns over the course of this past month? Things that set me off. Ask the Lord to show you that root system and that idolatrous desire in your heart. You might begin to see it's your pride. My pride was challenged, therefore I lashed out. My performance was challenged. I wasn't affirmed the way that I felt like I needed to be affirmed. Therefore I lashed out. My insecurities were exposed. I, I was afraid of losing control, and I found myself hating my neighbor and hating my wife or hating my child through my words, murdering my own family through my words. Let me give you an example from my own life, because this is an area that I struggle with. Parenting. Parenting my children. Parenting the disobedience of my children. And I'm just going to just be honest here because the tricky question is this. Am I righteously anger, angry over their foolishness out of love and protection? Or am I sinfully angry because I'm being inconvenienced by their disobedience? And this is, again, this is that righteous and sinful anger thing. Am I motivated from a righteous anger because I want to protect them? So that their foolishness does not take them in direction that's going to hurt them? Or am I just annoyed by their disobedience? Because they're inconveniencing me, and so I'm going to try to control them with my anger. This is a struggle for, for me, your preacher today. My own children can testify to this. Let me read this quote. If I am loving my children more than myself, my anger responds to their disobedience with patient and particular care and discipline. They are the objects of my love, and my anger is meant to deal with the threat that foolishness makes against their flourishing. But if I'm mainly concerned with myself, my anger is not love for them. It only deals with the inconvenience their disobedience is to me. It is impulsive, nearsighted, curved in on what is best for me. Not my children. I am loving myself at that moment 
not my children. Anytime anger steps into the room, the first question must be, what do I have to be angry about? Who am I loving right now? Who do I truly care about? Who am I loving right now? Am I loving myself? Am I loving my children? This applies if you don't have children. This applies to your coworker. This applies to your spouse. This applies to your neighbor. This applies to anyone you interact with. Who am I loving when I carry out this anger? Certainly exposes the distinction between righteous and sinful anger. But finally, I want us, because I know we're all sitting here going, wow, I've just been filleted by God's word. So we come to this final point of defeating sinful anger, and I'm not going to sit here and go, here's seven steps to have an angry-free life. I'm not going to do that because I don't have any of those. And you know, I'm sure there's books out there for that, but I don't recommend that. What I recommend is something called the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Because as we find ourselves exposed before the sixth commandment in God's word, and we realize that we all are murderers in our hearts through our anger and our malice and our wrath. That I want you to come to a place and God wants you to come to a place. Whether you're trusting him or not to be humble today. I mean how can you not be humble unless you're not listening? How can you not be humble when you hear and are exposed by your sin as you're, as you're before this incredible standard. Which Jesus will end this chapter say be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect, how can you not be humble to realize that I am guilty? That I am a murderer? That these idols in my life and these selfish motivations are so strong within me that it motivates the words and the thoughts and sense of my heart. Should bring us to a point which is the best place to be to say that we can't do it. We can't do it on our own. We can't defeat this anger on our own. We must rely upon the power and the beauty of Christ and his righteousness. This righteousness that's outside of ourselves. This righteousness that, that we are declared in God's eyes to be not guilty and to be righteous before him. This righteousness that begins to shape and change us into the people of God and to his image. Which then leads us to repent. If we're before the holiness of God and his law, we're humbled, rightfully so. We see our sin and moves us to realize that we can't do it and we must repent. Psalm 37, 8 says this, refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Refrain from anger. Repent of your anger, but you also need to repent over your pride. Repent over your desire to, to have control over your lives. Repent over your desire to be the center of attention. Repent over when things don't go my way that I lash out against you. And repentance involves certainly crying out to God and asking for his forgiveness, but it also involves going to one another when we have sinned against one another in anger and murderous hate. So going back to my friend Johnny, this unbeliever who I just totally you know, look like the worst pastor in the world, when I told him how much uh, this neighbor was a jerk, I the next day realized this is this is bad. This is awful. So I sent a text to Johnny and I just said, Johnny, please forgive me. 
please forgive me for slandering our neighbor. Please forgive me for for saying these hateful things and, and went on to just repent and confess in this text. He didn't respond. We never talked about it again. I, I was curious what this unbeliever thought about not only my original comment, but then my ask, asking for his forgiveness. Jesus makes this very clear in this passage to look back to our scripture today. He says this in verse 23. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and then remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. This is so important. What Jesus is saying here is that, listen, your anger and your bitterness, especially when you don't deal with your anger and your hate and your murderous hate that you direct towards your neighbor, if you don't deal with that, if you, don't let, if you let the sun go down on that anger over and over again, it actually affects your worship. It absolutely affects your worship, your ability to be able to worship God. And see, the Pharisees thought, you know, I, I, let's not take someone's life and let me be diligent with going through all the different rites of worship, and that will atone for my sins as long as I'm faithful to the externals. But you know what? I don't think we're too different sometimes because some of us just want to come here on Sunday and try to cover up that anger by just going through the emotions and singing these songs and listening to the pastor and, 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 and going through the motions. But Jesus says, you've got to understand that you can't worship me well when you have so much hate and bitterness for your neighbor. To the point that you may need to walk out right now and go make amends and ask for someone's forgiveness and be reconciled before you come back into worship. That's how serious this anger and this hate and this murderous malice can be. vital that we are reconciled with one another and finally i would say this humble yourself repent and then look to jesus look to the king look to king jesus who was not irritable or quick-tempered he was not prone to temper tantrums like we are without sin the lord is merciful and gracious slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love look to jesus who's not resentful who, har- who does not harbor anger and resent like we do. Look to the one who doesn't keep a record of our wrongs. Because, brothers and sisters, if you're in Christ today, you can be rest assured that God is not keeping tally a chart of your sins because he's put them upon his son, our Lord Jesus Christ. That he doesn't count our trespasses against us because he's already put it upon Jesus. Listen to what Paul says in Colossians 2. 13 and 14, having forgiven us of all of our trespasses, how? By canceling the record of our debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. See, when Jesus went to the cross, he took upon our anger. He took upon our malice. He took upon our hatred. And he absorbed that on the cross. There's a word that's used in theological discussions, and some of your translations have it, propitiation. Another word for it is atonement. 1 John 4.10 says this, And this we have loved, not that we have loved God, 
but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation of our sins. And that word propitiation is the idea of absorption. It's the idea of, of soaking something up. It's the idea of, a, you think of a huge sponge that you're going to wash your car with, and you take that huge sponge and you put it in water, and you just soak up that water. And then you can just drain it out and see all that fluid come out. That's the idea of propitiation. That Jesus, when he, when he went to the cross, he actually soaked up and absorbed the righteous anger and wrath of the Father that was reserved for you and I because of my sin, but instead of you and I receiving that wrath, that righteous wrath of the Father, His Son, who never sinned, who never got simply angry, soaked up the wrath of God. Soaked up the wrath of God in my place, in your place, so that you can have eternal life. This is the beauty of the gospel. And brothers and sisters, if you're here today and you don't know that substitute, you don't know the one who soaked up the wrath of God for those who trust in him, and his sacrifice was sufficient. We know that because he, he rose from the dead. The Father resurrected Christ because his sacrifice was perfectly sufficient. If you don't know King Jesus, the one who absorbed your wrath that you deserve, then I pray today would be the day of your salvation. Because you can't defeat your anger. You must look to Jesus who absorbed the wrath of the Father because of your anger. And he begins to change you and shape you into his image. That is the beauty of the gospel. Let's pray.